Welcome to Dose Nation, special episode 5 of 10. I am James Kent, and from 1974, this is Uriah Heep, Mr. Wonderworld. We freely speak of dreams, we marvel at what they conceal, but in my Wonderworld, each sleeping vision is so real, so I believe in hope. through this experiment on episode 5 of 10, exploring the darker side of psychedelics. I wanted to start this episode first by thanking everyone who has written in to express their thanks for these episodes. I guess that through the expression of my journey through psychedelic exploration and a psychedelic community, I've um, struck a nerve with some people who find my experiences familiar. And it appears that I struck a nerve with many people in my uh, discussion of the New Age movement and the different ideas uh, infiltrating psychedelic culture through the New Age movement, or vice versa, infiltrating the New Age movement through psychedelics. I guess this is a subject that many of you have come up against and had to work your way through, and I've gotten lists of that people have sent me of things in the New Age movement that I didn't mention on previous shows, and I didn't really design these shows to be a hit list of all the things that I wanted to call out, or all of the various axes that I have to grind. Some of those things will show up in the, in the content of these episodes, but that list that I gave of all of the New Age movements and New Age ideas all of the paranormal stuff that came out of the, the, the late 60s and 70s and 80s, that was just an indication to, to, to show you what the state of the community was when I became involved, when Terrence McKenna was at the top and, and this, this whole thread of New Age spiritualism, what Terrence McKenna called the Archaic Revival, was at the forefront of everyone's mind. And I also wanted to stress that, you know, 
being a person alive at that time, I was not immune to any of these ideas. All of these ideas were new to me, and I was just as eager to explore all of them as I was to explore more traditional scientific venues of discovery. So to that end, I have been spending um, much of these episodes talking about um, kind of typical New Age ideas and their relationship to psychosis and this idea of a magical world where delusional thinking becomes incredibly real or incredibly close to the point where uh, the person can actually see or touch or feel or experience that magical world firsthand and believe that it is actually there. And in some cases, that it is even more real than the real world. And in the last episode, these ideas culminated in the sad tale of Marsha Moore, the self-proclaimed psychic who pulled off the ultimate vanishing act of making herself disappear completely from the face of the earth into the bright world of her own ketamine psychosis. Now, one of the things I found most fascinating about Marsha Moore's mindset when going through her her book, you know, many decades after her disappearance, was at the time she was experimenting with ketamine, she had come to the conclusion that her very thoughts could shape reality, that reality was somehow made out of consciousness that her thoughts were producing the physical reality that she experienced. And this idea that reality is made out of consciousness is, is what I want to explore in this particular episode, which I've called Mr. Wonderworld, because the idea that our dreams, the, the inner thoughts that we keep to ourselves are somehow having an external effect on reality is one of these recurring themes that I, I, I come to over and over again, not only in the psychedelic community, but in philosophical communities as well, spiritual communities, um, even scientific communities to some extent. And in the last episode, I wrote this off as a fundamental lack of understanding about how reality works and a fundamental lack of understanding about how consciousness works. And when you have a person trying to understand reality and consciousness and they don't understand how either of them work, I can understand where it's easy to get confused. But this level of delusion where you believe that your consciousness is actually creating reality is something very troubling to me. It may be one of the most troubling aspects of this entire psychedelic experiment. Now, uh, to me, there are varying levels of crazy in the psychedelic community, and I talked about the belief in different power levels of psychedelics, from you know using them for self-exploration all the way up to being able to be a master of time and hyperspatial dimension, and all of those other tropes that get get pulled out in this science fiction shamanism mythology. And you know, so the delusional aspects of those power structures go hand in hand with what you believe psychedelics can achieve. 
you know, you can have a delusional belief that psychedelics are a miracle cure. And when you take them, you literally believe that you're making yourself more healthy or that you're becoming um, some sort of Zen master or, or Jedi master that is tapped into the cosmic wisdom of the galactic core or is somehow engaged in uh, a metaphysical battle to reclaim the psycho-spiritual regeneration of the earth or, or something else along those lines. And each one of these levels of delusion is like the next stop on the train to crazy town until you actually believe that you are in contact with a hidden dimension and you are in contact with hidden beings that are giving you hidden information from someplace beyond the kin of normal humans. And looking at psychedelic culture just through the lens of McKenna philosophy, this idea that there is a hidden hyperdimension and there are elves and spirits that you talk to that give you premonitions of the future or hidden wisdom, that was the end of the line. That was the last stop on the train to Crazy Town. And that was about as far as anybody could go. But then there became another stop on the train to Crazy Town. And this is the stop where you are so delusional that you begin to believe that your thoughts are creating reality. That's the last stop. I've come to realize now looking over all of this research that I've done and all of these notes that I have about the darker side of psychedelics, this space where you fall into the belief that your inner thoughts are somehow creating reality, I believe this is the last stop on the train to crazy town. And that when people get into this space, they've gone just about as far as they can go on the edge of their own sanity. Um with nowhere else to go beyond that point. And so I started looking in to this idea that reality is made of consciousness. It's a powerful idea, making your dreams a reality, changing reality by changing your consciousness. And the general philosophical thread weaving through these ideas is that reality is somehow made of consciousness. Consciousness is no longer just a state of awareness that people have. Consciousness becomes some kind of fundamental force that shapes all of creation. And that by manipulating consciousness as the source of all creation, quote, the source, we can then manipulate reality with our own conscious thoughts. And the idea that reality is made out of consciousness is strange. It probably originates in a bad understanding of quantum physics and that the observer just through the act of observation somehow affects the state of reality. Now you can Google the phrase consciousness creates reality and you will get all sorts of stuff that is clearly in what I call the woo genre, which is a field of pseudoscience linking quantum physics to consciousness. And I've studied this line of thinking as close as anyone can. And all I can say is that the people promoting this idea generally illustrate no understanding of either consciousness or quantum physics. And I say this now in hindsight because I've studied both of them for the last 20 plus years.
and I've come to the understanding that consciousness and quantum physics have nothing to do with each other, and consciousness has nothing to do with the fundamental nature of reality. But at the time, I didn't really have any understanding of quantum physics or consciousness. So these notions, primarily forwarded by Deepak Chopra and others like him, these ideas were new and worth exploring. Now, I mentioned in the last episode that there was a period of time at this point in my life where I was experimenting with DMT and trying to figure out how DMT worked. And there was a period of time where I thought that DMT allowed me to see quantum events and subatomic particles because this is where my mind was at. When I would sit in a dark room and smoke DMT, and suddenly I could see everything illuminated, and I could see everything at a kind of a, a very bright pixel resolution, and I could see things like forces of gravity pulling from the ground up and from the roof down. I was really on the thread that, oh, I'm seeing quantum events. I'm, I'm seeing these invisible forces of reality being held together um, through the DMT experience. In retrospect, I realize now that this was just another form of externalizing my own agency, of assuming that what I was seeing was not part of my own imagination, but was actually a true external force, a true hallucination. And I came to the realization that the thing I was studying was actually the brain in perception, not quantum physics and not subatomic particles, and that the things that I were seeing didn't really conform to the actions of subatomic particles. Because really, um, if you open your eyes and you see light and you see matter, you're seeing subatomic particles, you're seeing quantum events happening before you. You may not be able to see them as fast as you'd like, but everything that you're viewing is somehow related to an interaction of photons hitting an electron, which are all quantum events. So I know now that every time tr someone tries to throw the topic of consciousness or psychedelics outside of the brain or outside the realm of perception, it is some kind of elaborate bullshit. And this goes on for every aspect of consciousness. It's not just the, the woo science of Deepak Chopra, and I was going to play some sound clips from Deepak Chopra to illustrate what I'm talking about, but literally listening to the guy lecture makes me sick to my stomach when he's talking about how consciousness is this and consciousness is that. It just, it just literally is just too hard for me to sit through, so I'm going to spare you that. But it's not just the woo science. There is this other school of thought called philosophy of mind, which embraces this core concept called dualism, which was, I think, first introduced by Descartes all the way back in the 17th century. And the notion of dualism is fairly simple. Descartes basically said, you know, we can see material things. We can understand matter. We know what matter is made out of. It's solid, and we can break it down, and we can build it back up. But we don't know what consciousness is because we cannot see it and we cannot measure it. Therefore, consciousness must be made out of a different kind of stuff than physical matter. So Descartes proposed that in addition to physical stuff, 
there must also be this metaphysical stuff, this consciousness stuff that consciousness is made out of, and that it it we are imbued with it from birth. And this very much begins to sound like a description of the soul, uh, a religious argument for a non-physical soul that inhabits the body that's somehow different and isolated from the physical stuff that the body is made of. This is the root of the supposed hard problem of consciousness, how inert matter can become self-aware and conscious of itself, how the physical stuff that makes consciousness, brains and neurons, doesn't look anything like what we perceive as consciousness, which is first-person subjective phenomenology, sights, sounds, colors, etc. And if you don't understand anything about neurons or brains or biological organisms or how biological organisms exist, it's very easy to fall for this argument that consciousness must be made of something other than matter because you look at something like a rock or even a tree and you say these things are made out of matter but they don't have consciousness but we are also made out of matter, but we have consciousness. It's, it's a, there's a very easy way to frame the argument to make someone who doesn't really understand consciousness question whether or not their consciousness is physical or non-physical. And uneducated people who don't know anything about consciousness or science, but like sciencey sounding answers or philosophical-sounding answers, they will latch on to the idea of dualism. And moving forward from the assumption that consciousness is a kind of stuff that follows its own rules, that material stuff don't follow, it's easy to jump to the idea that, well, maybe consciousness precedes matter because there must be some sort of intent or force in the universe that's consciously manipulating things to take a material shape. And you can see that this argument has become full circle again. The dualist argument eventually comes around to the belief that consciousness creates matter and not the other way around. And then you can start jumping into ideas like, yeah, consciousness is not physical, it's all qualia, it only exists in a phenomenal realm, Maybe everybody's consciousness exists in this shared unconscious space and that all consciousness is non-local, is non-physical, and we're all bound through these entangled particles or superpositions of consciousness that allows consciousness to be a force that's spread out over everything. And so the fusion of these ideas, Descartes' dualism, and this sort of woo misrepresentation of quantum physics, this is where the new age crosses over into pseudoscience in a very hard way, where spiritual ideas, metaphysical ideas, start pulling in scientific words and concepts to make them sound more appealing. And I'll give you some very uh, simple examples. People use words like spirit energy, or spirit vibrations, or an energy being. 
or saying that this person or that person has really good energy or, or this party or this situation has really bad energy. And you co-opt the term energy to mean something that's sort of fleeting and illusory and non-physical. But that's not the scientific definition of energy. Energy is something that produces work in a physical system, like an electron or a photon or kinetic energy or uh, the force of gravity or electromagnetic energy or something like that. Energy is physical. Energy is measurable. So if you say, oh, yeah, I'm tapping into a spirit energy, then you're basically saying that the spirit world is physical because it has energy to exert some sort of influence on you, to exert influence on your brain. And if a spirit energy can exert influence on your brain, then it can be measured. And it's, if it can be measured, then it's not spirit energy. It's physical energy. People also use the term vibration to say that something isn't real. It doesn't exist. It's just a vibration. But again, a vibration is a physical thing. A vibration is an oscillation of something physical that can be measured. And energy is often stored in vibrations. So... These are all these are terms that were just co-opted wholesale by the new age movement from science to describe things that they really didn't know what they were talking about. Another good example of this is the word dimension, like a spirit dimension, or I'm getting information from a hidden dimension. But a dimension is just a mathematical term for a vector or an axis of measurement in a, in a mathematical model. Like you have the, the dimension of forward or backward, or the dimension of up and down. You have the three dimensions of physical space, plus the dimension of time. That's four-dimensional space-time. Those are very scientific and mathematical words and tools used for describing physical things in a mathematical model, which are then co-opted by somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about to describe something that they don't understand. Oh yes, I entered a spirit dimension. Okay, well, what are the coordinates of the spirit dimension? Oh, well, it doesn't have coordinates. Well, if it doesn't have coordinates, then it's not a dimension. I mean, that's, that's just the definition of dimension. People use the word dimension when they really mean a hidden universe or an invisible universe or a parallel reality. But, you know, hidden universe is, universe is a cosmological term. We know what the universe is. Parallel is another mathematical term that gets co-opted parallel reality. And these misrepresentations, this co-opting of scientific terminology, it is, it's more than just annoying to me. It's, uh, it's dangerous, and it indicates a level of ignorance in the culture that is scary to me. Because I have people tell me, people who've probably watched a Deepak Chopra lecture or something, and then they tell me in very serious, mind-blowing tones, that the universe is actually non-physical, that it's all made out of potential. It's all made out of potential energy. It's all vibrations. It's all waves waiting to collapse when we observe them. And then I have to be the asshole and point out that vibrations are physical. Potential is physical. If something has potential energy stored in it, then it's physical. And if there is a vibration, then it, it must be some physical thing that's vibrating some physical medium where the fluctuations are creating some measurable physical energy. So when you tell me that the world is just made out of wave potentials and vibrations, 
you're saying that the world is physical. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change the way that the universe works into some sort of mysterious force that is impossible to understand. It's just co-opting scientific language to try and make the universe seem more mysterious and less substantial than it actually is. And it is, in a very real way, the source of where this idea that consciousness creates the universe comes from. And at the risk of repeating myself, I'll say it again. The idea that consciousness creates reality is the last step in the escalating power structure of psychedelic delusion, starting with personal exploration, hidden powers, healing, spiritual transcendence, moving between dimensions and timelines. Actually altering reality with your consciousness, the pure manipulation of reality with your mind, I think is what Terence McKenna described as the true promise of magic, although he may have been talking about manipulating reality through language. But it's essentially the same thing, being able to think or speak something and have it become reality. That is the true promise of magic. And if you are approaching the true promise of magic using poorly defined pseudoscientific terms, it's my belief that in all probability you are on the edge of delusional reality and that you are slowly going insane. In the first few episodes, I hinted that at times during my psychedelic exploration, my sanity might not have been as sound as I thought it was. One of the common warnings you will hear in psychedelic literature is that people with underlying psychosis or a fragile psyche should stay away from psychedelics. But this raises a question. How do you know if you have a fragile psyche? or an underlying psychosis. If you've never been diagnosed with these things and you don't really show any symptoms, if the psychosis is truly underlying and not pronounced, how would someone know? How would, how would you know if you fit that description? And personally, I never thought of myself as someone with a fragile psyche or an underlying psychotic disorder. My only understanding of my psyche was that I had ADHD and was experimentally very curious. I like to take things apart. And when thinking about my psyche, I didn't consider my relationship to dreams and dreaming, which was always very pronounced. I was experimenting with lucid dreaming as a child long before I even knew the term lucid dreaming. So when I finally discovered psychedelics, the thing that was most alluring to me was the hallucinogenic power to make dreams appear in waking space. Now, at the time, I did not equate this hallucinogenic power with psychosis. I did not consider hallucination to be a form of psychosis, even though 
It is a textbook definition of psychosis. And I did not consider that the ability to easily and quickly hallucinate, even on low doses of psychedelics, might be an indicator of something like a fragile psyche or an underlying psychosis. I just considered myself to be sensitive to hallucinogenic action. And this may be exactly the same thing as having a fragile psyche or an underlying psychosis. I don't know. And I'm still not exactly sure about this issue. But from my personal perspective, going into this experiment, I didn't really take into account that my own ease of slipping into hallucination and my comfort of being in that zone might indicate that I'm one of these people with an underlying psychosis. And even in retrospect, it seems vague to me what all of this means. You know, the warnings about having a fragile psyche or an underlying psychosis. I've met people who've taken very large doses of psychedelics who claim that they never really have extreme visual hallucinations, not beyond the usual, you know, breathing walls or, or melting textures. Um, I sometimes find this very hard to believe, but I've heard it often enough to believe that there might be some truth in it. The anomaly of people who react in all the usual ways to psychedelics, but don't actually have intense visual hallucination, either geometric hallucination or you know, fully formed dreamlike images, is still something of a mystery to me. And I may revisit this topic later in another episode. But in contrast to those exceptional people, most people will hallucinate on a strong dose of psychedelics. Some people will even hallucinate on relatively low doses, or even on something like marijuana, which is only considered to be mildly hallucinogenic. And so it seems to me, and this is just you know, very gross speculation, that the people who can easily and spontaneously fall into hallucination even on small doses of psychedelics, are probably the same people who fall into that category of having a fragile psyche or an underlying psychosis. It's hard to say because these terms, again, are very vague. I will also submit that the language we use for talking about these things tends to lead people to assume that they do not fall into those categories of fragile psyche or underlying psychosis. Someone might describe themselves as a person with an overactive imagination, or someone who daydreams, someone who lucid dreams, or drifts easily into reverie. For instance, if you were to ask me as a child if I had an overactive imagination, or if I like to daydream and make up imaginary scenarios, I would instantly say yes, because all of those seem like creative, positive traits, or at least neutral traits. But if you ask me if I had a fragile psyche or an underlying psychosis, I would probably immediately say no, because not only do I not really know what those words mean, but those seem like negative traits, being fragile and psychotic. And that is not how I see myself, and I, I would guess that's not how most people see themselves. Even though a psychotherapist may draw those conclusions about me, based on my ADHD, daydreaming, lack of fo focus, having an overactive imagination, uh, very active dream-filled sleep at night, um, 
maybe mild tendencies towards bipolar, manic depression. Um, so those things may all add up to the fragile psyche or the underlying psychosis. And it's really hard to know if you're that person without having somebody do a clinical analysis of you before you try psychedelics for the first time. So I did not consider myself to be in the at-risk segment of psychedelic users. But I did maybe out of caution or maybe from having one bad trip where I had a, a very unmanageable psychotic episode. I did tend to experiment with psychedelic doses on the smaller side. This allowed me to pay attention to more subtle things while not losing control of my mind and memory. So I would try smaller and smaller doses of each substance to see what was the most subtle effect I could perceive on each substance. This is maybe the reverse of the way that Sasha Shulgin did it, but this was my method. For each substance, I was trying to pinpoint exactly how and where my perception was being altered. And this is kind of a hard thing to do if you have a heavy dose coming on all at once. You know, at parties or shows or events, I might take a larger dose to get more of the effect. And because I had a, a social safety net around me to make sure that I didn't lose control. But when doing personal research or experimenting on my own, I felt like if I just stuck to smaller doses, this moderation would keep me not only from losing it, having a psychotic episode, but also from suffering any lasting psychological impact. Now, one of the hallmarks of persistent delusional thinking or borderline psychosis is that it sneaks up on you. It's hard to tell when it's coming on, and this is one of the things that I really wanted to focus on in this episode. You never say to yourself, oh, I'm being psychotic right now. And I'm using the clinical definition of the word psychosis, where you lose contact with reality and begin having thoughts that are somehow detached from rationality or observable fact. And when psychosis starts, you kind of just ignore it or laugh it off and hope it goes away. And I'll give you some general for instances from personal experience. Say you're driving around and you see a car in your rearview mirror behind you that's there for a few minutes. You might get the feeling that you're being followed, even though there's really no reason why anyone would be following you. Or you see a person sitting in a car on your street, you might think that you're under some kind of surveillance or being watched. Or if you see a car circling your block, or hear a helicopter hovering over your house, uh, or phone rings in the middle of the night, you might think someone's trying to intimidate you. Or maybe you hear people laughing on the street and you think for an instance that, that maybe they're laughing at you. And all of these things suggest, you know, an underlying paranoia where there is some external force that you can't explain somehow trying to mess with you. And the paranoia is the first thing to come in this psychotic escalation. But after that is the grandiosity and the delusion. The paranoia turns into, well, who is it that's following you? What agency is spying on you? Are they secretly messing with your reality? Are they trying to manipulate your thoughts and behavior? What is the conspiracy behind this ordeal that 
whatever it is they're putting you through. And this delusion can take many forms. And like I said, I get emails from people who are sometimes stuck in these illusions and the conspiracies involve the government and science, scientists and uh, corporate entities and the Illuminati and aliens and telepathic communication from other galaxies or, you know, whatever. It can be, it can be little, literally anything. But the common thread is that it's all come out of your head. There is no actual evidence in the real world to show that something is happening. You've just pieced all of this conspiracy together in your head um, without any facts to back it up. And so the reason that I can talk about this with some familiarity is that there was a period of time when I was publishing that I was experimenting with many different drugs just to keep up with whatever was fashionable in the community. The early and mid-90s was a period of extreme renewed interest in psychedelics. There were legal highs, new pharmaceuticals, ethnobotanical drugs, research chemicals, and cocktails or mixtures of drugs for whatever purpose you needed, like candy flipping, for instance, which was taking ecstasy and LSD together to extend the sensual wow factor, the rush of the MDMA, over many hours of dancing and partying. So over the course of a couple weeks or a month of my daily life, I might take, for instance, not all at once, um, but I might take uh, LSD, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, 2-CB, mescaline, various salvia divinorum extracts, harmaline preparations, homebrew ayahuasca mixtures, nitrous oxide, ketamine, dextromethorphan, just to name a few. All the while, every day, constantly drinking coffee and smoking marijuana and at night binge drinking alcohol um, to keep me clear during the day and to give me regular sleep at night so that I could just keep regular work and sleep schedules. In retrospect, I agree this sounds like a lot of random drug experimentation, but that's, that's just the way it was back then in the early 90s. The only way to figure out what a specific drug was and what it did was to take it and maybe to take it multiple times at a couple of different doses. And that meant a lot of work trying to find specific drugs and then trying to find the time and place to take them. And I wasn't like uh, Steve-O, who we listened to in the last episode, who was addicted to psychosis um, and constantly inhaling nitrous and snorting cocaine and taking LSD and whatever he could just to keep him in that space. I was sort of a dabbler. I would reserve my psychosis for maybe a couple times a week just to see what the very di various different flavors of psychosis were like. Now, at some point in their early 90s, maybe 93, 94, I was really deep into this lifestyle. And I have to admit that between publishing a magazine, holding down a full-time job, and keeping up with the latest chemical trends in the psychedelic scene, I was not doing any real research, what I would call real research. I had sort of lost my way on that front because I was very much in the phase of just doing the groundwork of finding the drugs and taking the drugs and you know maybe making some notes and some observations that would hopefully inform my research later. 
But I was essentially just taking anything I could get my hands on to see what it would do. And like I said, I had some rules about the doses I would try and how much time I could set aside each week or weekend and so on. And one of the rules that I eventually came up with was that I would never go searching for drugs. And this is a lesson I learned after finding myself in a few random and dangerous situations with unsavory characters, you know, sitting around waiting for the guy, the person with the drugs to arrive, never knowing exactly what to expect. And of course, getting ripped off more than a few times with fake shit or what I would call bunk. So depending on word of mouth through friends and people in the community to find the good stuff, I would just wait until something came around. I just, I would just wait until I heard something was around. And then if I could get my hands on it, I would try it. Now, early on in my time in Southern California, I met a guy who would go to Mexico once every month or so and buy a whole bunch of ketamine, pharmaceutical ketamine, and then bring it back over the border. He would occasionally show up at my house with a bottle of Ketaset or Ketavet or Ketalar or whatever it was back then. And I would just, you know, use the bottle over a course of maybe two or three weeks to do some experimentation with ketamine. And during this time, I began writing and publishing about ketamine and became convinced that this was the best drug for lucid dreaming because you could just take a small dose, hallucinate for 45 minutes to an hour, and then recover and walk away. And then it was almost totally over once you had just recalibrated back into, into reality. Not only that, but there was something about the experience that seemed to collapse and reboot reality every time you took it. And when reality collapsed, you were literally at the cosmic core of all existence uh, and could manipulate whatever you wanted until reality started to come back online again. At that time, there was a lot of talk about the singularity in time and space, like a transcendental object that all of reality emanated from, that existed at the beginning and end of time. And I was reading these esoteric journals from places like the Meru Foundation and others that implied that all form, all physical form and all forces of nature and all language come from shadows of this transcendental object shining down from higher dimensional space, the Ur object, the Ur object at the beginning and end of time. And there were all these sacred geometrical diagrams that were something between occult and science. And of course there was McKenna and I was also studying John Lilly. And I felt that everybody in the current scene was kind of missing the boat, not paying more attention to ketamine. And I made it sort of a mission to keep going into that ketamine space and trying to find the right dose range where I could still get phenomenal effects. But I wasn't really so out of it that I came out of the experience remembering nothing, which is a huge problem with ketamine. So this was my first period of experimentation with ketamine, and even though I was only trying it once a week or so, it was having an effect on my psyche. Uh, during this time, I was becoming more and more fascinated with the occult and esoteric symbol systems, and I was doing this daily meditation where I would 
try to visualize the collapse of reality into this shimmering transcendental object. And I was becoming very, I was becoming very interested in reading about reincarnation and the transmigration of souls. And I felt like I was very close to figuring out something about ketamine. But then, of course, my friend who would go to Mexico every couple of months just disappeared. Um, and I guess I've heard after the fact that after, after a run to Mexico where uh, he and his friend had scored something like 20 vials of ketamine, uh, they came back across the border, rented a motel room, and actually just started doing the ketamine. And something like two weeks later, they were still there, and the motel owner had the police come by and kick them out. And then this guy left town because he owed everybody money, and now he had no ketamine. So he basically just disappeared for a while, and I have no idea what eventually happened to him. But that was basically the end of my ketamine experimentation for a while, because shortly after that, while looking for ketamine in yet another sketchy situation, I decided to stick to my rule of not chasing or searching for drugs, but just being content with whatever came my way. And this was a very karma-oriented approach to drug experimentation. I figured that if I'm meant to do more exploration with ketamine, I don't need to go looking for it. The ketamine will find me. And this, is, of course, in retrospect, is another example of magical thinking, but that's kind of the space my head was in. You know, I just figured if it's meant to be, it'll, it'll just show up. Now, miraculously, shortly after my ketamine hookup disappeared, my fascination with occult symbol systems and the transcendental object almost evaporated completely out of me at the time. It's like I just instantly lost interest in those things. And at the time, I didn't make the connection between the two, between the ketamine and the symbol sets and the, the transcendental object. But I guess I decided that the transcendental object was kind of a dead end, literally, because there's nowhere you can go from the transcendental object except back to where you came from. <laughs> and like in mathematics, once you hit a singularity, you're basically done with the problem. You can't really go any further because the, the numbers won't let you. And so I kind of left the whole ketamine thing behind me, thinking that I was pretty much done with that. But for the sake of continuity, I'm going to fast forward to a few years later when I was now living in Seattle. And I'm over at a friend's house to talk about various, you know, different drug experience and events that we might be planning and different things going on in the community. And at some point during the evening, he says, you like to do ketamine, right? I said, sure, I, I, I love ketamine, but I hadn't really done it in a while. And then he kind of got a weird look on his face and he said, you want some? And I said, what, right now? You want to take some? And he said, no, 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 no. And then he disappeared into his bedroom and he reappeared a few seconds later with a zip, Ziploc baggie filled with like half an ounce of ketamine powder. <laughs> More ketamine than I thought I could do in my lifetime. And he had bought it from a friend, thinking that he would eventually do it with a group of friends or throw a party where everyone was doing lines of ketamine off silver platters or something, you know, fancy and debauched like that. But after having a few negative experience where he passed out on the floor 
and you know came to in like sketchy situations he basically decided that he just wanted out of the he just wanted it out of the house it was bad news and he couldn't keep it around so let's go back to what i just said about my rule of not searching for drugs the rule was that if i was meant to experiment with something that thing would find me and i wouldn't have to go looking for it and now, here I was confronted with a lump of ketamine powder about the size of my fist, which was being offered to me completely for free. Now, of course I took it. And of course I spent the next six months shoveling my way through that bag pinch by pinch. And I knew this was dangerous having this much ketamine around. I had read enough about John Lilly and Marsha Moore to realize that it was easy to get lost in that space and worse, there was no tolerance that was built up so that you could just keep doing it and doing it and doing it over and over and over until the ketamine was gone. So I clearly had to make up some rules to keep me from losing my mind. And my main rule was this. I would never take a dose that would totally knock me out. And I would never double up on doses or redose, which was basically the source of the repeat use trap, um, constantly re-upping and redosing. Um, and I decided that I would try to wait at least a day or two between each session to make sure that I was not falling into the repeat use trap, which I assumed was the most dangerous aspect of the drug. Now, I did break one of my rules, and that was at some point on my major ketamine jag, I was using it as often as once a night, usually late at night, and I would spend an hour in a light, lucid dreaming state on ketamine before then going to bed and falling asleep. And at this time, I was doing it almost purely for recreational reasons at this point, because there was literally more ketamine than I could do. But there was also another idea formulating in my head something that came almost entirely from this period of time when I was experimenting with ketamine, and to a lesser extent from experiments with nitrous oxide. And the idea was this. The most phenomenal aspects of any psychoactive drug experience occurs when consciousness and perception are changing, when they're in the process of moving from one state to another. As an example, if you are in a constant state of consciousness that's like being in a car that's traveling at a constant speed. You don't feel the motion. However, if the car accelerates or decelerates, you suddenly feel a phenomenal shift pulling you one way or the other. You can feel the momentum of the system changing, and that phenomenal change is what is most profound. It's not the motion, it's the change in speed that creates the, the profound phenomena. And the second thing I was, I was getting to was that the most phenomenal aspect of any hallucinogenic drug occurs right on the border between waking and sleeping, because this is where the hallucination becomes most prominent. And third, and this sort of combines the two, if you can find the dose range, the dose range of a drug which traps you in a state where consciousness 
is right there on the edge between awake and asleep, toggling back and forth at maybe multiple times a second, then this is the most phenomenal space of all. This is the place that feels craziest and produces the craziest hallucinations and blurs the boundaries between reality and imagination faster than perception can tell the difference between the two. And this idea of creating this toggle state or superposition between waking and sleeping states that shifted phenomenologically between awake and asleep maybe many times a second became the basis for psychedelic information theory, an idea which took maybe a decade or more after this to actually figure out. And as an example of this, I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some observations I made at nitrous oxide parties where people would inhale nitrous oxide past the point where they could feel the initial, initial phenomenal shift. And they would continue hyperventilating the drug until they were about to pass out. And then, right when they were on the edge of passing out, toggling between that state of being awake and asleep, they would slip backwards into a loop in their own mind where sensation started to stack up on itself. You know, like the wah, 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 where everything just sort of echoes in this, this, this crazy loop. And after that point, they would start breathing air again. And suddenly they would come back to wakefulness and that wah, 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 wah would dissipate. Now, the Goldilocks zone for the nitrous oxide user was not the tingling or the sensual numbing body effects. It was the zone where reality starts to slip away entirely and then feed back onto itself as reality dims and then brightens again and dims and brightens again and dims and brightens again in that kind of wah, 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 wah zone. It was like a throbbing or what I call the toggling of consciousness between waning and waking, shutting down and coming back online multiple times a second, like flipping a light switch on and off. And my experimentations with ketamine followed that model where I was trying to do dose response exploration to find that perfect toggle state where you're just right there in the middle switching constantly back and forth between waking and sleeping. And for some reason, that toggle state, to me, was the holy grail of all psychedelic experimentation. It was the lucid dreaming mother load, the transcendental object, the out-of-body experience, the near-death experience, the theta state, the dream time, the Akashic record, the collective unconsciousness, the afterlife, the ultimate hypnotic trance. It was all of these things. And... I was using all kinds of different technology to try and measure this state. Um, I had an oscillator on my computer that could produce pulses and tones that I would use to try and match the speed and frequency of which I could feel my perception toggling. And I had light and sound machine, brain, brain machine goggles and headphones that I would use to attempt to match the frequency uh, that I felt my brain was toggling at so that the light was hitting at exactly the time that I was coming back online and then go off at exactly the time that I was, I was dipping back so that I would get these very, very intense and durable hallucinatory spaces that seemed very solid and concrete. And even though I was being kind of methodical and careful about my 
ketamine experimentation, there were problems. Measuring dose with ketamine is sometimes extremely difficult, especially when the optimal dose for maximal phenomenal effect is the exact dose it takes you to pass out almost entirely. Finding this Goldilocks zone that is perfectly on the edge of waking and sleeping is very difficult. Um, and, you know, sometimes I would, I, would, I would miss the mark. Sometimes I would take a dose, lie down on the couch, and then come to a half hour or 45 minutes later in a completely other part of the house, like I had just teleported. And I didn't know what had happened to me. Um, I often took ketamine in the bathtub to make sort of a low-tech sensory deprivation tank, a practice which is extremely dangerous, foreshadowing a tragedy that I'll talk about a little bit later. I also mixed ketamine with a variety of other research chemicals to see if I could brighten the hallucination or extend the depth of that, that toggling effect. But mixing chemicals only added to the problem of blackout overdose even though I was using extremely small doses of each drug in the mixture, it's always hard to know how they're going to work together. And on one occasion, I was mixing ketamine with a popular research chemical at the time. And at some point during the trip, I wandered outside in the backyard to lie down on the grass in the middle of the night in the cold in Seattle. And I came to shivering in the dark, not really realizing how I got there. And why was I lying on the ground? Because I think I was trying to connect with the guy in mind, of course. I was doing my part to aid in the psycho-spiritual regeneration of the earth by getting high on ketamine and lying on the ground. I was literally on that vibe somehow. Not sure how I got there, but that's, that's where I came to on the ground in the middle of the night trying to connect with the mind at the, at the core of the earth. Now, at the time, I didn't make the comparison between waking up shivering in the dark in Seattle uh, to the disappearance of Marsha Moore years earlier, but in hindsight, the comparison is obvious. That moment when I woke up in the backyard was essentially the end of my experimentation with ketamine. Um, not only because I was nearing the end of the bag, but it had also just become too unpredictable. I had basically topped out on how far I could go into the exploration. And all of the other edge of consciousness research I was doing was leading me into unconsciousness or lack of consciousness, which was not helpful. So that was that was basically the end. Now, I've written a bunch on ketamine. You can find some stuff I've written online. I've done some presentations on ketamine. I had a slideshow that I did at a couple of different events. But I've never reported my find final findings on ketamine, which were the topics I just discussed about the toggling between wake and sleep that produced this elusive K-hole effect, which eventually became the basis of psychedelic information theory. But the other thing I never discussed was just how crazy I went during that period of time when once a day or once every other day at night I was taking ketamine, you know, and it was an average of maybe three or four nights a week for a period of about six months. And again, I would only take it once a day at night. 
and I would never re-up or double up on the top of the dose. But still, there was this residual delusional reality that stuck with me, and it was cumulative. The longer I was experimenting, the more irrational my thinking would become, to the point where I thought people might be breaking into my house and stealing things, or moving things around, hiding things, just to mess with me. Now, this goes beyond the basic paranoia of thinking I'm being followed or peering out the window at cars on my street. I was literally having irrational thoughts about, you know, people coming into my house while I was sleeping, and I wasn't able to check myself for sanity. And this wasn't while I was high. This was during the day while I was perfectly sober. While I was high, I was in the tub collapsing reality or on the couch with electronic lights blinking strapped into my face. Now, another thing is that during this time, there were some ornamental fish in my pond in the backyard that had disappeared. And although I rationally figured that a raccoon or a heron or some other animal had come and fished them out, I could not help thinking that someone had come and stolen them. And even beyond that, when I would drive past a pet store that sold exotic fish, I would wonder if my fish were in there. And again, this is a crazy assumption. I knew that this was crazy thinking as I drove by the fish stop, wondering if somebody had gone there to, you know, pawn or fence stolen fish. But the idea made me angry. I could not figure out where that idea was coming from. And even a while later, I realized that the fish were actually still in the pond. They had just gone hibernating down in the muck on the bottom of the pond, like fish will do sometimes. But one day they were gone, and the next day they were back. And I couldn't understand how they were suddenly gone and then back. It was like someone in the world was fucking with me. And the fact that I couldn't figure it out, uh, it frustrated me. It frustrated my mind. And it, it, it didn't make me think that there was something wrong with me. It made me think that there was something wrong with the world. And one other thing is that during this time, I had become obsessed with gray aliens and gray alien conspiracies. I had read everything on the internet about this mythology. I had combed through the Serpo diaries and all the auxiliary reports, all the case files of alien abductions or UFO sightings. And I was planning on writing a book on the subject. And I did, you know, sometimes hours of research on this topic of day and then would get frustrated when there was no more information, or when the leads or reports of encounters turned out to be, you know, falsified or dead ends. But again, here's the interesting thing. Just a few short weeks after I stopped taking ketamine, after I'd realized I had come to the end of my ketamine journey, all of that fascination with aliens just went away. All of the concern over who took my fish or who was breaking into my house, it just disappeared. I, I just thought, oh, that was really silly. What, why was I even thinking about that stuff? It was like a fog was lifting out of my head, and I could no longer understand why I had spent so much time chasing down these threads of conspiracy. The paranoia just went away. I stopped looking in my rearview mirror to see if I was being followed or staring out the window every time a car went by or a helicopter hovered overhead. I stopped thinking about 
collapsing reality or touching the transcendental object. And I rationally reconsidered my notions on reincarnation and transmigration, and it all crumbled away like a sand painting. My tolerance for entertaining those metaphysical questions just vanished. And I realized that I had gone to the edge of sanity again, that I had been paranoid of the crows following me around the neighborhood, and that I was starting to channel white light out of the palms of my hand again to perform psychic tasks. I was practicing magic. And all of that, it all just fell away when I stopped experimenting with ketamine. And that's something that I've never mentioned in any of my reporting on it that now seems extremely clear in hindsight that even just daily use or once every other day or a couple times a week use over a period of time will lead to this kind of persistent delusional thinking. And I know this because I've gotten reports from other people who were doing the same sorts of experiments with ketamine who were now being followed by mantis insects or being in contact with, with aliens or being at the center of some sort of elaborate government conspiracy using telepathy and, and mind control. And then once they stop taking the ketamine, which is what I advise everybody to do when they write me with these sort of paranoid theories, I just say, well, stop taking it for a week and write me back and see how it goes. And literally, almost in every case, a week or two later, the person will write me back and say, geez, gosh, thanks, I don't know what that was all about. In retrospect, it doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't seem to matter anymore. Because now that I'm out of that delusional world, it's just not a part of my reality. side effects that happened after I stopped taking ketamine that time was that I also forgot all about the toggling experiments that were to form the foundation of psychedelic information theory years later. Those notes were put away and forgotten, and I literally forgot about most of them and all of the light and sound experiments until years later when I revisited this idea after experimenting with brain machines again, after reading uh, Zoe Seven's book, Into the Void, which came out in 2001, I believe. In that book, uh, Zoe Seven describes many experiments uh, very similar to what I was doing with various brain machines, uh, light and sound strobing machines, in combination with uh, drugs and drug cocktails that would force his body into a state between waking and sleeping or uh, specifically trying to bring about high dream or REM activity exploding into waking states that he described with very vivid detail. Uh, and like me, Zoe 7 was experimenting with all sorts of drugs and technology to chase down this specific state where out-of-body experiences happened. Because he came out of kind of a remote viewing background, a cult, 
with a master that taught him how to remote view. Uh, it's a pretty interesting story. His story is fairly strange. But also, like me, he went a little crazy. I mean, he writes in his book that he was able to slip into alternate realities where he found out that he exists simultaneously as seven different people in seven different timelines, hence the name Zoe Seven. His mythology is pretty far out there. Uh, he goes farther out than even Terence, if that's possible. But for a period there in the 90s, in the mid-90s, we were both doing the same kind of experiments with uh, lucid dreaming and uh, light and sound machines. But there was another guy in the 90s writing books about his own experimentation, a guy named D.M. Turner, who wrote a book called The Essential Psychedelic Guide in 1994. And even though it was a relatively short book, everyone I knew who read this book came to realize that D.M. Turner was the guy. He was our guy. Um, for everybody who was coming up in the 90s, he was the man. Terence may have been at the top of the food chain with his wild theories and his very successful books, but D.M. Turner was a guy who wrote in the underground in very fine detail about the phenomenal aspects and qualities of each type of psychedelic. He wrote all about the drugs that were circulating in the scene in those days. 2CB, mescaline, DMT, MDMA, salvia divinorum, ketamine, and, of course, uh, mushrooms, LSD. And his descriptions of the effects of each drug were always very brief and very accurate, also taking into account the different effects caused by different combinations of drugs, which was a relatively new thing. Um, combining or cocktailing drugs or different research chemicals was, was actually quite a big thing in the 90s, and... Uh, we would do everything. D.M. Turner uh, has lots of information about combining different drugs with uh, harmala alkaloids or ayahuasca admixtures or, you know, combining ketamine with different cocktails. Um, and normally he wasn't talking about aliens or transcendence or alternate realities. He was mostly just laying out the facts and observations of his experiences in a very clear and mostly rational way. Now, in some ways, D.M. Turner's book made me a little angry because he wrote a book very much like a book I was thinking of writing. But he got to it first, back in 1994, when I was still just trying to get up to speed on all the various hallucinogenic materials out there. And one of the other things that kind of irked me was he introduced this notion that DMT is a water spirit, which he talks about in some detail in his relationship to different DMT experiences that he had either near water or in the desert. And this is something that I would hear over and over again for years after this book came out from people. They would say in conversation when talking about DMT, oh, you know, DMT is a water spirit. It, it likes to be near the water. And I would ask people where they got that information. And usually people would say that it was just, you know, a common wisdom, common part of shamanic lore, and everybody knew that. And I would constantly have to tell people that this idea came from a chapter in D.M. Turner's book, 
many people probably didn't even hear of DM Turner, but they had heard that DM, DMT was a water spirit somehow. It was one of these memes that just kind of circulated, uh, and it goes back to this book, DM Turner's The Essential Psychedelic Guide. Now, of course, a close reading on this chapter about DMT water spirits will show you that uh, the times that DM Turner describes trying DMT near the water, he was also already tripping with a large group of people on LSD and Harmala and other drugs before he even tried DMT. And that when he was in the desert, he was mostly exhausted and dehydrated and alone and not in a very good mood. So I would argue that there were other things going on in these equations besides being near water. But I tended to let that go because it was, you know, it was just sort of a speculative thing. People saying DMT is a water spirit is far less harmful or obnoxious than some of the other claims being made. And everyone in the community had great hopes that DM Turner would write more books and put a new face on psychedelics that was more about clinical observation as opposed to, uh, you know, positing some kind of fringe theory or crafting some new age mythology. Now, when I was putting this episode together, I have to admit that I have not read The Essential Psychedelic Guide since it came out in the mid-90s. It's available online now, and I went back to revisit it to see if it was as good as I remembered. Uh, Like I said, it's short, brief, descriptive, pretty to the point. It doesn't spend too much time getting bogged down in political or spiritual argumentation. And looking over his chapter on ketamine, entitled Ketamine, The Ultimate Psychedelic Journey, I was actually surprised to find this passage. Quote, Some 30 minutes to an hour into the experience, I come to an apex. At this point, I have felt that my will determines whether or not I exist and whether or not the universe exists. And I could toggle between existence and non-existence many times within a second. I've even had the impression that I could cause the universe, which is quite fluid in the moment, to crystallize in whatever format I desired, although I haven't had the impetus to actually try this." Now, I had actually no idea this passage about toggling back and forth between existence and non-existence many times within a second actually existed in this text. But upon rereading this passage a few weeks ago, I found it very familiar, even eerily similar to the idea I had latched onto about finding that exact spot where wakefulness and sleep was at such a fine boundary that perception was literally oscillating back and forth between wake and sleep, like a switch being thrown at something around 8 to 16 times per second. And I'd never seen anyone write about that particular feature before. And I was surprised, but not incredulous, to find that D.M. Turner had noticed this as well. Um, He spends some time talking about how the trick to ketamine is getting the optimal dose because the optimal dose is right on the boundary before you hit full unconsciousness and that you're really just trying to find that bullseye to put you in the twilight zone without actually knocking you out. He also writes, quote, a major concern regarding safe use of ketamine is its very high potential for psychological addiction. 
a fairly large percentage of those who try ketamine will consume it nonstop until their supply is exhausted. I've seen this in friends I've known for many years who are regular psychedelic users that have never before had problems controlling their drug consumption. And I've seen the lives of several people who developed an addiction to ketamine take downward turns. After about two years of once-per-week ketamine use, I even found that I had developed an addiction. And I'm going to make a side note here. Two years of once-per-week ketamine use is what he's talking about. Quote, Although it was less severe than what I've described above, it took considerable effort to break the cycle of repeatedly using it, even though I was aware of detrimental effects that it was causing. Since that time, I've used ketamine only occasionally, but find that I must continually exercise a high degree of willpower to prevent myself from falling into a pattern of regular use. Amongst those I know who use ketamine, I've seen very few who can use it in a balanced manner if they have access to it. Close quote. Now, those of you listening, if you know who D.M. Turner is, then you probably know what happened to D.M. Turner. D.M. Turner was the pen name for a guy named Joseph Vivian, a guy who was maybe 31, 32 years old when he wrote The Essential Psychedelic Guide. And over the next couple of years, he wrote another book, Salvanorin, The Psychedelic Essence of Salvia Divinorum, which came out in 1996, which was, again, a very short book, but full of good descriptions of the Salvia experience. And then on New Year's Eve... 1996. Exactly 20 years ago, around the time I'm recording this, Joe Vivian drowned in the bathtub while high on ketamine. And almost as suddenly as he came into the psychedelic scene, suddenly he was gone. People got the news that D.M. Turner was dead. He was only 34 years old. to me and to many people in the scene at the time because like I said he was our guy he was of our generation and he was incredibly astute when it came to observing and describing psychedelic phenomena he was also always very careful to detail the dangers and cautions and warnings of psychedelic experimentation from his book I'll quote it is important that one not undertake any bodily activity that could be dangerous while on ketamine The normal reaction abilities that prevent us from accidents and death are suspended while on ketamine. When I take ketamine, I'm always lying down and I do not get up until the tail end of the experience. Even for a few hours afterwards, I will not go outdoors where potentially lethal traffic is passing by. He goes on to say, one of the safest methods of taking ketamine is to have a friend or sitter present when one takes it. Since I frequently take ketamine while alone, I take precautions, such as extinguishing all candles in my room. Were I to accidentally knock over a candle and start a fire, I probably would not have the presence of mind required to extinguish the fire or move myself to safety. 
So D.M. Turner clearly knew the dangers of ketamine. He knew the addiction potential. He knew the potential for accidental death and had claimed that he had kicked his addiction with the use of DMT and other tryptamines, which, quote, provided insights into the negative effects ketamine was having on my life, a reduction in ambition, a reduction in healthy mortal fears, such as the fear of death, as well as a reluctance to confront fears or difficult tasks and situations directly, close quote. Now, I was always under the assumption that D.M. Turner went underwater while lying in the tub, uh, high on ketamine, but other sources indicate that he was found face down with his head at the faucet end of the tub, indicating that maybe he sat up and fell forward, or maybe he slipped or rolled around at some point and wound up unconscious and face down. These details are sad and grisly enough, but are made only worse by the fact that his body wasn't found until the 24th of January over three weeks later after his New Year's Eve death. And this brings me to one of the themes of this episode, which is how do you know when you're in psychological danger? How do you know when you've left recreational or experimental hallucinogen use behind and have crossed that line into delusional or self-destructive behavior? And the answer is, sadly, that sometimes it's hard to tell. In fact, for most people, it's probably impossible to tell. And to illustrate this point, I will suggest that if D.M. Turner were alive today and you pressed him with questions, he would be the first to say that if you are suffering from a psychological disorder like social anxiety or depression, that you should probably stay away from high doses of psychedelics, especially taken alone. Maybe stay away from them altogether. But certainly don't take them in solitude where you have no one to help you if you get into trouble. And at the risk of sounding like a dick, because I know people who were friends with Joe Vivian, I would submit that if you are shooting ketamine in a bathtub alone on New Year's Eve, and no one notices you're missing until three weeks later, then maybe you might be suffering from some underlying emotional disorder, like social anxiety or depression. And no matter how astute your rationality or observation may be, the ability to remain an objective observer of your own emotional state or self-destructive behavior somehow slips away and becomes beyond self-analysis. Presumably, taking a high dose of ketamine alone in the bathtub on New Year's Eve was Joe Vivian's way of celebrating the coming of the new year. He wasn't dancing at a big party or watching fireworks. He wasn't sharing a kiss with the special someone at midnight. But he was instead slipping into twilight sleep in the womb-like enclosure of a warm bath alone with no one expecting to hear from him or missing his absence for days to weeks afterwards. Now, there was real-world fallout from Joe Vivian's death. His parents apparently had no idea he was publishing psychedelic literature, and one of the first things they did when they found out was to confront the publisher of the Essential Psychedelic Guide and threaten legal action 
unless they remove the book from circulation entirely. They claimed that they now owned the rights to his books, and they would threaten to sue if anyone sold another copy, because they didn't want them being sold. They didn't want anybody reading them. Coincidentally, Marsha Moore's parents tried to do the same thing. They tried to prohibit anyone selling or republishing copies of Journeys into the Bright World after her death. But all of these books are still available online for whatever they're worth. They're worth something to me, of course. Now being able to find all of this material in hindsight, I, I find very valuable. But the other thing I heard after D.M. Turner died from a couple of different people was the rumor that D.M. Turner was experimenting with out-of-body experiences and astral travel, and that maybe his death was the result of him traveling too far out of his body into the astral realm and not being able to find his way back. And I would be just agog. I mean, I was unable to respond to this because this kind of thinking is clearly some kind of mental protective system to keep the psyche from dealing with the grisly horror of what actually happened. I mean, just take a second to juxtapose the image of D.M. Turner drifting away in an epic astral travel versus the horror of Joe Vivian face down in the bathtub, drowning asleep, his body jerking as life twitched out of him and then left there to soak and bloat and decompose for over three weeks. And to the idea that he got lost astral traveling, I just have to say no. No. You can't cover that up with pretty words like astral travel or out-of-body experience to wash the horror away. This was not an astral traveling accident. This was a tragedy, pure and simple. So now, what does it all mean? How do I bring this full circle? Why do I conjure up the ghost of D.M. Turner for this episode? Well, like Marsha Moore, Joe Vivian's life ended with an inability to shake away from something that they knew was dangerous, which was ketamine. And the allure of that instantly accessible dream world that you can easily escape into at a moment's notice. And both of their deaths mirror close calls or dangerous positions that I found myself in due to a compulsive desire to explore deeper and deeper into that space. So I feel a close connection to both of them, and I have artifacts of their existence around my office that pop up to the top of piles of papers and books that I have every now and then, and I'm forced to confront their fates all over again, each time like it's fresh. And although I try to eschew fantastical or paranormal thinking, I cannot help but think that we are all bonded in some way, that we were all looking for the same place, and maybe even found that same place, with the exception being that I managed to put down the ketamine and 
never returned to that place because I never searched it out and it never came back to me. And even now, at this point in my life, if it did come back to me, I'd probably turn it down. Not because I don't enjoy it, but because I don't particularly enjoy the memories of those experiences that I had or the memories of my own paranoia and delusional reality and of the people I've met who've had that same experience. And I spoke at the top of the show about this notion at the end of the delusional cycle where a person moves past these notions of self-transformation or transcendence and healing and metaphysical wisdom and spirit worlds and into the realm where they literally believe that reality is made out of thoughts, that their consciousness somehow creates reality. And for the most part, for the last 20 plus years, since I knew of D.M. Turner, I've given him a pretty strong pass for sticking mostly to clinical analysis and observations and descriptions of phenomena. The DMT water spirit thing was annoying, yes, but that seemed more like a whimsical observation than something to be taken seriously. He also mentions briefly that spirits and entities exist in the psychedelic space, but more in passing and not as his primary shtick. I always thought that this was a, a nod to shamanic mythology and supporting the findings of you know people like Terence. That yes, ancient spirits may appear while you're high, but not really taking a metaphysical stance on whether or not they are real spirits, just reporting on the phenomena. But then, upon rereading D.M. Turner's Essential Psychedelic Guide, I came upon the last chapter. And just like Albert Hoffman's LSD, My Problem Child, there is a last chapter here that veers off the beaten path and goes into some kind of internally tortured psychobabble about the nature of reality. This chapter is called Psychedelic Reality, Psydelic Space, spelled C-Y-D-E-L-I-K, Psydelic Space, all one word, with the C in Psydelic and the S in Space capitalized. Now, as I was looking at this, I thought, whoa, what is this? Because I did not remember that this chapter was even in this book. I have no recollection of ever reading this. And I guess maybe I have a problem with finishing books, or because of my ADHD and lack of attention, I just tend to put books down when they descend into some kind of babble I'm not ready to follow. So when people start off chapters with inventing their own words to describe things, like psychedelic space, this is a realm that I know from reading enough of over the years that this is going off the rails into a whole new territory. So I'll give you the two opening paragraphs of this chapter because when I read them, I was completely blown away. And hopefully, if I've set up this episode with any artfulness, some of the impact I felt, maybe you, you'll feel as well. Okay, so here we go. Psychedelic reality, psychedelic space. Quote, There exists a state which I call psychedelic space, 
that I have visited numerous times through the use of psychedelics. Psychedelic space has correlations to the digital world of cyberspace, described in William Gibson's novels. However, psychedelic space is not a fictional dimension. It is accessible now, and even appears to be the underlying reality behind all existence. It is of this state that one becomes aware, to a greater or lesser degree, during deep psychedelic experiences and any other mystical or spiritual experience. Psychedelic space is vast. It appears to contain all matter and energy in all of its manifestations since the beginning of time. This state also contains thought. In fact, it may be thought that gives birth to matter, since experience of psychedelic space supports the notion that the manifest universe is a construct of consciousness and not the other way around. Close quote. And there it was. I saw now, in hindsight, what I did not see when I first read this book 20 years ago, that D.M. Turner had already gone around the bend. Just like Marsha Moore professed in Journeys into the Bright World, D.M. Turner had come to the conclusion that thought and consciousness create reality, not the other way around. And the key to this transformational magic was accessing a hidden dimension, the underlying reality, and manipulating the fabric through some kind of magic. And, you know, D.M. Turner goes on to describe this space, giving it some of the properties of the mystical Akashic record. Quote, Not only is psychedelic space a complete depository of my own life's perceptions, it similarly contains all thoughts and experiences of every human, animal, plant, and molecular life form that has ever existed in the universe since time began, including the life experience of individual cells and galactic star systems. Close quote. Now, unlike the usual brevity and clarity that D.M. Turner writes with, this chapter goes on and on with stuff like that. It's probably the longest chapter in the book. And as I read it, my perception of D.M. Turner began to change. Because underneath this very rational and careful observer of phenomena was someone who had gone so deep into their own inner world that they had actually given it a brand name. A brand name a mythology, an academic argument, and snippets of experience that seemed to imply that this entire ontology came out of a series of multiple trips where D.M. Turner was mixing ketamine and 2CB, possibly multiple times a week, based on his own testimony in interviews. And I'm not going to read the passages of this chapter. You can find them online at Arrowhead. You can just search D.M. Turner, Essential Psychedelic Guide. But I can't help but feel that the content of this chapter shares a striking resemblance to many of the descriptive passages from Marsha Moore's Journey into the Bright World. There's an overabundance of magical, poetic language and gushing attempts to spin a kind of linguistic gold from experiences of galactic transcendence or the living of parallel lives or even cosmic conspiracies involving aliens and DNA. All the usual stuff is in there. 
So despite the appearance of rationality and sanity, DM Turner somehow got it twisted around in psychedelic space. And here's where it's easy to slip up in this line of thought. Because your consciousness definitely creates your reality. Your consciousness is your representation of reality. But your consciousness can also create alternate realities, like when you dream. And in a dream, consciousness or the subconscious literally creates a new reality, a fake reality. But still, it seems like a reality when you're in it. In a dream, thoughts can become realized in an instant. Because in a dream, reality is controlled by you. But when you start to think that your dreams or your thoughts are creating your reality, or that they are somehow an accurate reflection of your actual reality, then you've somehow gone out of bounds. That is, you've hit the definition of psychosis. You've, you've reached a break from reality where you can't tell the difference between what is real and what is dream. No matter how close you're paying attention, and no matter how many notes you take, and no matter how many books you write, if you can't keep track of your own sanity and your own borderline between reality and delusion, what, what's it all for? So even if you're very skilled at manifesting dream realities, if you can't manage to manifest a reality where you're not delusional and addicted to drugs, what's that skill actually worth? What good is lucid dreaming if all it does is lead you deeper into yourself, deeper into isolation, and away from other people, hoping that, that this time the dream may go a little deeper, may last a little longer, and maybe, just maybe, you won't need to wake up again. living room at 328B Union, and I'm doing an interview that I arranged some time ago because I'm so impressed with the little book that you put out, DM. This is DM Turner, who wrote a book called The Essential Psychedelic Guide, and it's quite different from any other psychedelic book that's around, actually, because it's personalized. That's right, it's personalized and it gives a lot of direct information on what actually happens when you take psychedelics. And it's written based on my own experience as well as experiences of many people that I've talked to over the years. You must have started young. Oh, probably about 13 years old. You're very lucky. I was in my late middle age before it happened to me. <laughs> Imagine that. Let's talk a little bit about what's essential about psychedelics to begin with and then go on into some of what you got in your book about the various combinations and so forth. Well, what's essential about psychedelics? Uh, yeah. In which way? Well, what, why bother writing a book even about it? Well, For those who don't know. Sure, there are a few different reasons that I wrote the book. I think the main reason is for the people that have not already read 20 other books on psychedelics. Uh, I've been involved a little bit in the, uh, in the rave scene uh, a lot of younger kids going to the all-night dance parties, a lot of people being introduced to drugs like ecstasy and LSD at these events, and a lot of them taking it uh, without very much preparation, without really knowing very much about the substances. 
without having much of an idea about the potential benefits or the potential dangers of using these substances. And so I thought that those were the most important people that could benefit from a book like this. Uh, so that was one of my objectives in writing the book. The other one is that being a long-term user of psychedelics, I've tended to uh, develop an interest in some of the more exotic psychedelics, uh, DMT, ketamine, 2CB, uh, ayahuasca, and the harmella alkaloids. And with substances of this type, there's a precious small amount of literature out there and very little to very little to know first-hand information from people who have experimented with uh, done these things and are able to talk about dosage levels uh, methods of using the drugs and what they will experience so before we get into that what shall I call you DM yes good DM um, I'd like to get back yet once again to the is there an essence to the psychedelic experience what is it that is not accessible to us going to the bank or the post office or the beach well, I think there um, the psychedelic experience is a very different experience that would than what most all people experience during their lives a uh, few people try to attain similar experiences through various spiritual practices, uh, meditations, yogas, things of that nature. Uh, essentially what happens when someone takes psychedelics is uh, their consciousness, their perspective is enlarged. It goes outside of the boundary that they normally consider to be themselves, the individual perspective. That is more or less obliterated and one finds himself viewing and experiencing things in life from much vaster perspective from something which is further upstream in consciousness before you sort of narrowed down your perspective to that of a human being with a particular personality with a particular life that you live lived through which sort of colors everything that you then experience so, is it something like like an electron jumping to another ring moving around or, or is it some kind of quantum leap that just not ordinarily accessible that's to a good us? analogy it's like a quantum leap in consciousness uh-huh and what's the importance of that quantum leap for you because it's going to be different for various folks I'm sure I think the most important thing for me is it gives me a vaster uh, a vaster and it seems more accurate perspective on everything. Uh, you could use the analogy of, say if you were some type of animal that lived only on the ground, you only walked on the surface of the ground, so you had one particular perspective what things looked like walking on the surface of the ground. Now say you were all of a sudden be able to become a bird and fly up high in the sky and you were able to see uh, large areas, you're able to see continents and oceans and you're able to take in a much larger picture from this different perspective. So then in talking about the experience itself and all the different drugs and combinations that you have in here, would you like to discuss perhaps some of the differences between a DMT experience perhaps or an ayahuasca experience? Is there a quantitative or qualitative difference? Between those two? Well, between any. And if so, what? Okay, yes, there are differences. Uh, I think the most important thing with psychedelics is what I will call uh, the basic psychedelic experience, the process of dissolution of the identity and moving to a place where you have a larger 
space of consciousness. Uh, this happens with all psychedelics to a greater or lesser degree. With ecstasy, it's only one which does not really quite produce that experience, ecstasy not being quite a true psychedelic. However, uh, as you experiment with some of the different psychedelics, you do find that each one has some own uh, significant things which it does that none of the other ones do. Okay, then let's, for instance, let's do some for instances, because okay. now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of what your book's about. That's right. Which is detailed, experiential information about what the experiences are. I think the uh, two that would be easier to compare would be LSD, which a lot of people know about. Uh, the experience of LSD tends to be something which is its very personal. Uh, most of what people experience on LSD either is based on their own set, their own personality and makeup of their mind, the way that, that operates, and what happens when that dissolves and when that sort of breaks apart and they start seeing things from a freed per, uh, perspective. Uh, and even with very large amounts of LSD, you tend to stay within the same type of realm, even though with the larger amounts, you uh, start experiencing things which you think of the beginnings of life in the universe, the whole process of creation. Mm -hmm. uh, Phylogeny and all of that stuff. When, when you start using, uh, in particularly, a lot of the natural psychedelics, it actually, what my experience is, is that I come in contact with very old entities. Uh, we'll say these entities have been around at least since the first humans started experimenting with these plants. Excuse me, is that on any psychedelic? Are we talking about We're talking DMT? natural psychedelics. Natural, DMT, plant, yes, plant DMT psychedelics. in particular. Okay. Uh, plant psychedelics. And so most of these plant psychedelic entities are at least 4,000 years old. Now, when you experiment, when you work with these plant psychedelics, what I find is that these entities are actually there they are aware of you, they're aware of you as a person, and they're able to communicate with you. They're able to tailor the experience in such a way that it moves you along in a particular direction at a particular rate. So in a sense you surrender to entities who may be wiser or have a great deal more knowledge of the, what the universe is all about than you can as an individual? Uh, whether you surrender to these entities is, of course, each person's decision on whether or not, that, not they want to do that. My feeling is that, yes, you do come in contact with entities that are much more intelligent mm -hmm. than any human. So uh, Terrence McKenna's little green men are sort of uh, some of those entities, huh? Those are ones which uh, most people encounter when they're doing something like that. What about you encounter? Uh, I've encountered uh, I've encountered those entities. Those entities actually seem to be a part of a larger entity, which, uh, for lack of a better word, I simply call the, the DMT entity. Uh, one of the things I find with my DMT experiences is, regardless of the particular manifestation which I might be seeing at a, at a given time, it seems that they all partake of the same wisdom and intelligence and consciousness, so that I can have an elf, you know, a little green tiny elf, six inches tall, come up and communicate with me and tell me something, or I can have a, a godlike being, some great giant luminous being come down and manifest in, you know, most spectacular shamanistic uh, cross between, a, you know, say a bird and a person, or something like that, and communicate something to me which may be much more profound, but both of these seem to be partaking of the same wisdom, they're some part of the same communication. I always think that um, I'm, I'm dying, that's what dying is going to be. 
and that that's what the Tibetan Book of the Dead is about in its way. So uh, we're talking about uh, smoking DMT or? Well, smoking DMT and ingesting DMT do produce different experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, I've talked a little bit about this in my book. I've actually had a lot more experience of smoking DMT. It's relatively quick to do the whole experience lasting 20 minutes to 30 minutes at the, at the longest. Uh, ingesting DMT, I feel though, is a preferable way to do it. And how do you ingest it? Well, for, for DMT to be ingested, you have to take an MAO inhibitor at the same time. Uh, Which traditionally, is? Well, an MAO inhibitor, MAO monoamine oxidase is an enzyme which exists. It's in your stomach, it's in your blood, it's in your brain, and it breaks down all sorts of different chemicals that are in the metabolic processes. And one of the things that it breaks down is DMT. If someone were to consume DMT without taking an MAO inhibitor, it would be destroyed in the stomach. They would never feel any effects from it. Uh, maybe if they ate enough, they would, but it would have to be a very large amount. It's interesting. What do you suppose the innate function of, of MAO inhibitors are? Is it to keep us from the psychedelic experience? Somehow or other, we're wandering through the jungles of old. That, that is quite possible, actually, because a lot of these chemicals, such as DMT, is present in our brain all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, possibly the MAO is something which is like a regulator for this, mm -hmm. as well as many other things. It regulates how many of these chemicals are present in the brain at any given moment, uh, which allows us mm -hmm. to function on this particular plane as human beings. If we had, say, 10 times the amount of DMT in our system, then we always do, we may not be able to function in this particular realm. Is there any evidence, or do you know any DM, to show that the, there's a possibility that the, the more you are high, whatever that means to you, but the more you're high expanded, the less MAO uh, inhibitors there are in the bloodstream? That is, there's something in the physical itself that allows different states of consciousness to happen? I, I couldn't say that based on my... So yogis in India we were at, mm -hmm. how, what remarkable things they do. You want to talk about it? Are we on? We're on. Okay. Yes, the yogis in India, uh, even without taking any drugs, apparently there is some change in the mixture of the <coughs> brain chemicals. I, I guess before we go any further, DM, I should really give people a little more information about your book, and then sure. we'll announce it again afterwards. DM Turner is the author of a book put out by Panther Press called The Essential Psychedelic Guide. I was very impressed by his courage, your courage, not only in experiencing what you've experienced, a real pioneer in psychedelic consciousness, but in publishing it and exposing yourself because I assume the reason that you published this book is in order to uh, pass on the importance of the experience and the set and setting to optimize it. That's correct. It's so that people can learn about these things. And so if people are doing them, they can do them in the most appropriate manner with the most with necessary background information. What is happening at the raves? You talked in the beginning about wanting to reach the younger generation, well, to me. Yes, you know, I have not really been going to them that much lately, so I couldn't really give mm -hmm. you up to date. Uh, they are still happening, they're still going on. Have uh, they been a venue for higher consciousness or, or just fun? Or do the two go together? 
I think that the, I think that the two go together. Uh-huh. And uh, really, I think with any event, one of the things that I found when I was attending more of them is that the event is really made up of the people that go to it, even more mm-hmm. so than the people that are performing at it, the DJs or the people that are putting it on. So what the state of consciousness is like, this, the uh, state of shared consciousness, which you may get in events like that, is very dependent on who's attending it and the state of mind that they're in. Okay, then to get back to the psychedelics themselves, uh, let's speak a little bit more about, for instance, there's a very large ongoing debate about the benefits or, or disadvantages of, quote, chemical as against quote, plant substances. Mm-hmm. Would you uh, express how you feel about that? Sure. Well, I'll start off by saying that the first psychedelic that I ever took was LSD, and the effect that it had on me was absolutely profound. Uh, I was transported to the most magnificent, spiritual, joyous place that I could ever be, which was filled with light and knowledge, Mm -hmm. Uh, the psychedelic provided everything which is needed of a psychedelic. And I've had many other wonderful experiences with this and other chemical substances since then. So I don't have anything against the chemical substances in that they're not able to do the job. Uh, There are some problems with chemical substances in that they are usually not pure. Uh, Why is that? You think they'd the, be pure? Oh, the reason for that is that, is that they are being manufactured in underground laboratories. Mm-hmm. That's the main reason. So the uh, the quality of the equipment being used, maybe the starting substances, uh, the skill of the chemists involved, all of these things are would be different if this is something which was legal in society and was able to be done completely above the ground. Right. One of the things that I found is that the purity or the quality of these substances very much affects the experience. In what ways? Well, LSD is probably the best example, and I didn't really write about this in my book, but uh, most of the LSD on the street is not very pure. Uh, There's a few reasons for this. The most pure LSD that I've come across is what people, it goes under the name Quadcept, and I don't really know too much about the chemical process of making this, but apparently in the manufacturing they go through a final crystallization and purification stage four times. So the Quadcept LSD, they go through its final crystallization repurification process four times, and each time they do this it gets out more of the impurities in the substance. Uh, Are those impurities, do they tend to make you nauseous, like uh, some of the alkaloids and peyote, let's say? No, I wouldn't say that they do that. I would, well, when I first had Quadcept LSD, I actually probably had it a long time ago, like probably in my high school days. However, I did not have any of it for a very long period of time, probably for over 10 years, until uh, somebody gave me some, maybe about three, four years ago, and I tried it. At that point, I had thought that all the LSD I had taken over the previous 10 years was completely pure. It was all the same, you know, it was all the same, even from the different batches. And I took this Quadcept, and I realized at that point that none of what I had taken during the previous 10 years had been pure. I did recognize the experience produced by this as something which I had had before, but a long time in the past. And uh, the difference is phenomenal. With, with uh, a very pure LSD, there is almost no bodily sensation. The feelings which are absent compared to most of the LSD on the street is a very slight 
amphetamine quality, a mm -hmm. very slight edginess mm -hmm. that most LSD produces, a slight metallic taste in the mouth, mm -hmm. uh, a very slight agitation of the nerves. It's that, it, that comes and goes? Well, this is not there. I with, see. It's not the there at all with this That's pure. correct. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that as you become more familiar with the experience of LSD, uh, there actually the, the feeling of the experience seems to become subtler and subtler. Uh, when you first take it, you're just it's sort of like a big barrage of all sorts of new sensations. After you've been taking it a while and you take some of the LSD which is not pure, one of the main things which you experience is actually the impurities. Since LSD itself, pure LSD, is so transparent, it's almost complete, a completely mental experience. There's you know virtually no bodily type of. Does this translate sensation. into a, a quote bum trip end quote? Uh, not I mean, necessarily. Not necessarily. But I think that if all of the LSD which had ever been distributed in the underground, you know, beginning from the mid '60s onward, had actually been completely pure LSD, there would be a much different perception of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the fact okay. that there has basically been almost none of this type of LSD distributed uh, does account for why a lot of people you know, do not like certain things about substances of this type. Now, the one of the, now when we talk about chemical psychedelics, we also do get into some other families, however, uh, such as the phenethylamine substances like uh, MDMA, ecstasy, and 2CB. Now, Are, is 2CB and MDMA related? Yes, they're both phenethylamines, which okay. is they're related in chemical structure to mescaline. Okay. Now, these psychedelics, uh, MDMA in particular, is quite hard on the body, and if you talk to 50 users of it, they will tell you that they usually feel a little bit wiped out, the next drained day. the following day. It's very common. Besides, uh, there's a clenched jaw effect. There's and the there are definitely amphetamine side effects. Most, uh, a lot of these psychedelics, you know, synthetic ones in that family, they certainly do not have the perceived purity that either the natural psychedelics or LSD have. That, so that, we're back at the purity. So, no, did I interrupt you in the middle of a sentence? No. So, it, however, on the other hand, if you have some, let's say, dried psilocybin mushrooms, the, you have no way of knowing what the content of that is. Oh, you may you're you are uh, hinting to us that you may not know what the content of certainly street psychedelics is, but on the other hand, how do you know what the content sure, of well, a dried if mushroom have, is? If you have uh, a dried psilocybin mushroom or a dried peyote buttons or something of that nature, uh, assuming that you are dealing with a psilocybin mushroom, the most common one being psilocybin cubensis, it's also called Stropheri cubensis. Basically, what you have in there is going to be the natural psychedelic in its natural form. Uh, psilocybin does degrade with age, exposure to heat and oxygen and so on, so the potency may not be as strong. Mm -hmm. However, you don't have some of the impurities that you would have in a chemical manufacturing process. Occasionally, people do get things on the street which are actually <coughs> uh, not psychedelic mushrooms, but they're some type of say a store-bought mushroom which has been dried and then altered by like injecting LSD into it and sold as a psilocybin mushroom, I don't know how often that happens. But if you're actually dealing with, it seems, you know, what's mostly available, which are, are the true psychedelic mushrooms, then you're dealing basically with a pure substance. Now, one of the, one of the other things that I've noticed is that 
it seems that when people are using the natural psychedelics that they very rarely have negative experiences, much less so than something like LSD. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that LSD is so transparent that well, there you better is, explain transparent. The transparent, I would say, is that it does not ha it has very few qualities of its own in terms of directing the experience. Uh, okay. Mushrooms have a very strong flavor to the experience. When you take mushrooms, you are all, if you take a large dose of mushrooms, you will definitely feel like you are high on a psychedelic drug. So are you saying that if there is innate intelligence in the substances themselves, one of them tends to control you, and in the other case, it's, uh, it's aiding and abetting you in raising your consciousness or ascension or whatever you want to call yes, it. Yes, I wouldn't necessarily say that it controls you, but it, I would say that it is present and that it affects the experience, mm -hmm. and that it is something which someone can uh, learn to listen to and actually learn to work with. Th these are, I call them allies is the term I like to use for them. Nice. And these entities exist and they can be communicated with. They would like to communicate with people. Is it possible uh, for those people who might be listening who don't take psychedelics, you think it's possible for them to communicate without the aid of uh, some sacramental su substance? Well, it's quite possible. There are a lot of branches of shamanism uh, which use different routes of essentially altering your consciousness. Drumming or something like That's that. That's right, right, drumming or Painting chanting sometimes. or painting, making masks, all uh -huh. sorts of things. Right, all right, but back Ritual. to psychedelics. I really want to discuss uh, in some detail, because I think it's one of the most valuable parts of your book, the combinations and the various experiences that you can have on them. That's been something that has had very little publicity before. That's correct, and that's one of the reasons I wrote about it, is because when I had an interest in doing these things myself, there was not any place that I could find information on it. I had, yeah, to, I had to experiment. That's right, I had to experiment. I, mean, I had to work with each of the individual substances and try to get an idea of how they would work if they were combined. Try to get a feeling if it would be appropriate. It's scary sometimes trying to take, I mean, when, when Shulgin and his group take something, they take such tiny little bits and then add a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, but you just plunge in. That's true. Well, with all the experiences that I've had, I would say the most disappointing ones are the ones when I have not taken enough. Uh-huh. Yes, certainly there have been experiences that were unpleasant when I wished I hadn't taken as much, uh -huh. experiences which were intensely frightening or intensely unpleasant or uncomfortable in different ways. Uh, one of the things I found, though, is that after those experiences are, are passed, that I find that I learn a lot from them. So those experiences will happen once in a while if you're doing large doses of most any of these, psych uh, these substances. But I think it's something which uh, should be taken as, you know, a part of the process. Let's get back to negative experiences a little later. What substances, what combinations, well, we haven't even mentioned ketamine yet, but what combinations of, of sacraments, I like to call them, substances, have you found were most optimized? I would say the most <coughs> optimized. Well, certainly there is taking DMT in combination with an MAO inhibitor, uh, which could be either Banisteriopsis, which is how they make the ayahuasca brew in South America, or with Syrian rue, which is a much more potent MAO inhibitor and much more readily available. And this can be done either uh, 
when DMT is smoked or when DMT is ingested. Could I give just a little plug for uh, the basement shaman and tell people that they can get a lot of these um, Syrian rue seeds and so forth from them? Anyway, go let's. I just uh, like those folks. Uh, that same substance, I think, combines uh, the MAO inhibitors actually combine quite well with psilocybin as well. Uh, psilocybin is actually very closely related to DMT. As a matter of fact, it's almost identical. Psilocybin is basically a long-lasting tryptamine. So you highly recommend taking an MAO inhibitor if you're going to do psilocybin mushrooms? It, yes, it will, uh, it will potentiate the mushrooms mm -hmm. and it will enhance the experience. There are some drawbacks, however. The main one being that these MAO inhibitors are both, uh, they're emetics, they tend to produce nausea, and mushrooms also tend to produce nausea or often give people borderline nausea. At the beginning. So, yes, taking the two of them in combination mm -hmm. increases the chances that somebody's going to be nauseous mm -hmm. during the trip. Uh, that's not necessarily the worst thing that can happen to somebody. Yeah, sometimes it is it's a, a real pleasure. That's correct. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, however, to be aware that that's a possibility. That's right. So we're, we're talking about an MAO inhibitor, uh, Syrian rue, especially because it's so potent. And psilocybin, what other combinations, Dan? Uh, the other combinations which I found to be particularly useful are, uh, this gets into back into the synthetic drugs again, is combining 2CB with ketamine. And why is that? Ketamine, I've only experienced it once. I'm really glad because I'm sure I'd get addicted. Uh, it's such a beautiful experience. But it, it's you're out like that. I mean, there's there's no time between... Ingesting or having it shot into you and, and being gone. Well, yes, ketamine is extremely different than any of the other psychedelics. You don't uh, have time to get scared. It seems, <laughs> it seems that the mechanism by which it works is almost the opposite of the regular psychedelics, and uh -huh. that it, uh, you know, you become unconscious. It's an anesthetic, whereas other psychedelics make you super conscious. Ketamine, in that sense, seems to actually open you up to a realm of the subconscious which you're not normally aware of. Uh, what I like about the combination of 2CB and ketamine is that when doing ketamine alone, just by itself, I find that during much of the experience I'm not really aware of what's happening. I may be aware on some level of consciousness uh -huh. at the time, uh -huh. however, when I come out of the experience and I go back through all the various gates of consciousness which make up a human consciousness, I find that I lose quite a bit of the experience. Okay, we're talking about uh, ketamine and that you uh, actually don't bring back consciousness of the whatever you the is, and I do want to discuss that in a minute. You don't but, bring back consciousness of the, of the entire experience. Right. Now, 2CB, the perceived effect of 2CB is in many ways almost opposite that of ketamine. Uh, 2CB in some ways tends to make you, uh, it sort of like makes the ego like a superstructure. Uh, it, it's a, a very body-oriented experience. It puts you very much in your body, uh, very much into your sense of self-identity. And when this is done, you know, the 2CB has to be done before taking the ketamine, what happens is that you still go through a ketamine experience, however, you are much more aware. It's sort of like you bring a little bit of human awareness into the ketamine realm and you bring more of the experience out of the ketamine realm as well. I'd, in a second or two or three, I'd like to discuss the ketamine experience per se. Uh, you do at some length in the book, and I think it's important. But I am really curious when people talk about the you 
that experiences, it always seemed to me that one of the beauties of psychedelics is is actually dying to that you. And I'm not sure that I'd want to take a substance which increased the you-ness of the experience or or that Elizabeth was going to be cognizant. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things I would say is that if you do that with ketamine, there's you still find that the personality is gone. I think that you could break down the you into several different levels. You could take a, you know, you could take either the physical level, you could take a personality level, you could take a mental level, you could sort of like start stripping these layers off of the you. And it seems that uh, when you get in, the furthest that I've ever gotten in with uh, with uh, ketamine and most psychedelics, it leaves, uh, I think you best describe it as just a pure witnessing consciousness. It's just a pure awareness. It's something which all of everything what's happening in the universe is like making impressions on it. It's sort of like the uh, the great tape recorder in the sky. So oh, that's the way you put it. The Akashic <laughs> Records of metaphysics. The hard disk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, that's that's good. So the you becomes that which is uh, the observer and can actually watch DM or Elizabeth or whoever's listening maneuver through the uh, melodramas and then out of them into something that's more expanded. That's true. That's uh-huh. right. Well, that, that's nice. Let's talk about ketamine and what that experience is. I'm back at I asked sure. you. What, what's the uh, difference to you in the ketamine experience and uh, other psychedelic experiences? It well, was a vast difference. There is, there is a vast difference. Uh, it's, the substance is very different. Uh, when the ketamine experience comes on, you don't feel the dissolution like you normally do with most psychedelics. Uh, ketamine is used clinically as an anesthetic. It's given mostly to children and to elderly people when they're being operated on. I begged for it. I had my gallbladder out a few months ago. They wouldn't give it to me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it comes on very quickly when it's injected, injected, which is the way that it's usually taken for psychedelic use. <laughs> and there's almost no transition period. You feel a very slight dimming of consciousness, and then the next thing that you're aware of, you are in a completely different realm. Uh, what happens during this time is that it so effectively wipes out your perspective of being an individual that you, with it, when you're in this realm of the ketamine realm, you've actually forgotten that you are a person. You've forgotten that you're a human being. Uh, human, the, the, even the concept of a human being may not be anywhere in your consciousness, and you certainly, certainly have forgotten that you are a human being that has taken a drug and is now having a psychedelic experience. Uh, it seems like the boundaries between self and what is perceived are dissolved, uh, much more so than with any other psychedelic. It feels very much like the place which I go into when I take ketamine is a space of infinity. Uh, this is sometimes represented visually. That is, the consciousness has become infinite. You've identified with infinite consciousness. That's correct. Call, uh, some people call God. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, <gasps> Instead of existing in this state of separation or semi-separation mm-hmm. that we seem to be in most of the time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this is, the experience of this is always blissful. Uh, very profound. 
the visual component, for myself at least, is extraordinary. Uh, I like to see complete detailed universes blending into each other like somebody shuffling a deck of cards or something of that nature. Very quantum. Uh, it seems like out of every recess that infinity is exploding and more and more things are coming out. Oh, holy it seems that there is an endless amount of variety here. Infinite. And it's infinite. Yeah. And it is fascinating. And the type of things which I perceive and experience in this realm, it completely boggles the human concept of existence and the universe and what that's all about. It's, it, is, it is from a different realm. It is altogether alien to how we normally perceive things. And is that different from the uh, DMT experience or the, uh, or the LSD experience? Well, what I will say about Why is it DMT, so addictive? What, what I will say about Pardon DMT me. and LSD is that you can certainly get a glimpse of the same experience with those. I've even had impressions uh, from DMT is that if you work with it enough, and this actually would happen through a state of very deep trance, you can actually experience in as much detail as you do with ketamine, you know, as vast, as cosmic a space. Uh, it seems to be much more difficult, however, to do this with these other psychedelics. The main reason for this, or my theory of this, is that with ketamine, for a period of maybe a half hour or 45 minutes, the ego is completely obliterated. It's making it's no effort to try to come back into the picture to get a handle, to get a foothold, to try to you know get a perspective and understand things. With ketamine, the ego takes a rest for half an hour, and you experience this uninterrupted. When I've had these moments where I've experienced something very similar with LSD or DMT or some other psychedelic, it tends to be very brief. If it lasts for two full minutes, that would be a very long period of time. Yeah, wait a minute, though. But you're saying if it lasts for two full minutes, but then when you're experiencing it, it it's there. You're out of time. That's correct. It doesn't matter if it's two minutes or eternity because it both feels the same. Like, it feels like eternity while you're experiencing. Right. It. That's okay. Right. Just to make that clear. Sure. So if you were dying, this is something I've been thinking about as I advance in age. I've had people offer to do the Aldous Huxley trip and shoot LSD into me or this or that, but it seems to me I'd rather have ketamine, that that, that exit into this land of such beauty, peace, harmony, and color and everything would be exactly where I'd like to die. Yes, well, certainly I think that using any of these substances, of course, can help prepare someone for the afterlife or whatever is going to happen the next stage. Uh, I also have some problems with ketamine in that it does obliterate some aspects of awareness which you don't necessarily want to have obliterated. Uh-huh. What about those? Which ones are those? Uh, a whole lot of human perspectives, a whole lot of your personality, things which are not necessarily present in your mind when you're on something like LSD, but they are available to you. When you're on ketamine, these things are not available even if you wanted to go and get them or need to make references to them for some reason. So, whereas with uh, a psychedelic like LSD, the, the focus of your consciousness may not be on your personality or your physical body. However, that is accessible should you need to go there. So, you would reason. prefer, um, or uh, there's some point to be made for psychedelics that expand consciousness but at the same time allow 
some kind of control or consciousness if you need it to shift attention or, or whatever? That's is correct. that what we're talking about? Well, yes. What I would say with uh, ketamine is that you probably have less control of the experience with ketamine than you do with any other psychedelic. I guess that's why I like it because you're not, there's, with all the other psychedelics, I'm nowhere near as experienced as you are, I don't think, but um, that with all the other psychedelics, there's some, often there's a period at least of some kind of struggle for control where the ego says, oh, you're not going to kick me out of here. and. Uh, and the higher intelligence says, "Oh yeah, I am," and then uh, and that's discomfort at some point in time, just like Buddha described. Yes. Well, I th I think that there are certainly advantages to ketamine. I certainly have had experiences with it that I do not think I could have had without it. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I went through a period of probably about two years where I was using it quite frequently. Mm -hmm. And I found that you know, I got addicted with a once-a-week habit. That, that's very that I actually common got addicted among friends of mine. And one of the things that I found happened during this time is I started losing some of my uh, abilities to direct a trip with my own willpower, with my mm -hmm. own mind. Mm -hmm. I got so used to just letting the the flow guide me along with ketamine mm -hmm. that I sort of, you know, put to rest, you know, some of other things which I should be working on. I think that one of the important things with psychedelics is that you have this experience which lasts for anywhere between 20 minutes and 12 hours, depending on what it was that you took, but then you still have a whole life that you come back to. And I think that it's very important that you bring something from these experiences back and try to develop your life to, uh, you know, further yourself, you know, along your own personal evolution. And I think that ketamine is not particularly effective at that. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's completely ineffective, but it tends to, uh, it tends to be a little bit more like an escape. It's sort of like, I need to take a break from this life as a human for 45 minutes and go experience a little bit of immortality. And it feels very good, and you start doing it, and you do it again and again, and keep so going good. back to it. And <clears throat> uh, what I found about the other <clears throat> psychedelics is that they are much more challenging, uh, DMT in particular. And it's one of the things uh, which you know sort of alerted me to this you know habit that I had developed with ketamine is the fact that it was not a challenge anymore. Uh -huh. The only challenge with a ketamine experience started to become what will I be able to bring back from it. And you know, I would you know have you know my notepad next to, to me and so on, try to write things down when I first came back. <laughs> but the experience itself was not really a challenge, whereas DMT uh, DMT seems to always be a challenge. Uh, it's a very difficult experience to control. It's overwhelmingly powerful. It can be overwhelmingly frightening, and it takes a lot of effort to work with it but it seems that the results from working with it can be very beneficial. I want to tell people before we go further that uh, I'm speaking with D.M. Turner, author of The Essential Psychedelic Guide, put out by Panther Press. And it is a, a remarkable diary, really, of various experiences on substances that are sacramental and that tend to enlarge consciousness. So um, let's talk, we haven't talked at all about the negative aspects or the frightening. You talked about frightening. Yes. Yeah. I hear some rave beat across the way. I don't mm -hmm. think it'll be on this, but 
it's interesting that it's there. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, frightening experiences are bound to be encountered by people that are using psychedelics. I would say maybe with the exception of ecstasy, which tends to not produce the full spectrum of psychedelic effects. And these experiences happen for many reasons. I would say the main reason people have these experiences is because they are afraid of losing control of some aspect of their personality, some aspect of their life. Uh, taking psychedelics is like opening the floodgates in a way to all sorts of experience. It's sort of like opening up the door to the subconscious and the superconscious. So when somebody takes psychedelics, they can have very positive, uh, cosmic, loving experiences, maybe during their first ten times that they do it. Then maybe on the eleventh time, they run into all sorts of feelings and visions which really frighten them. They can, sort of you know, hell. Mm -hmm, sort of a, a version of hell. And uh, it can be very disturbing. Uh, a lot of people that are not prepared for something like this will, you know, become very frightened. Some people seem to develop a long-term types of neuroses from having these experiences and uh, it's a very powerful experience. I think that the most important thing that somebody can do who's going to be using these substances is to be prepared for them. And how would you suggest being prepared for them, Dan? I think the best way of being prepared is to read about the experience. Especially uh, in the Essential Psychedelic Guide, right? <laughs> read about it in the Essential Psychedelic Guide. Read about it in other books which uh, look at it from a little bit more of a uh, psychiatric or psychological perspective, mm -hmm. such as Stan Groff's Holotropic Mind, mm -hmm. uh, guidebooks such as uh, The Psychedelic Experience, which was written by Tim Leary, Richard Alpert, I was and amazed to see that mentioned in your book because... Uh, those of us who were born in the Haight-Ashbury days, as it were, uh, on psychedelics, that was a that was the textbook without which you you never tripped. First, you read that or read pieces of it, and then went out. And I didn't know that anyone even realized it was around. Well, fortunately, it's actually still in print. Well, that's still, wonderful. Still in print and available at many bookstores. Ramdas and Leary, one of the great classics of this age, probably, is to how to use psychedelics spiritually mm -hmm. whatever I'm not quite sure what spiritually means but most people have an idea of something or other anyhow quite so you can have this frightening experience as though uh, you don't know what area you're going to enter into at the end of the frightening experience is there has there been progress or whatever that means well this is this is a very important question and I think a whole lot of this depends on a couple of things one of them being how a person is prepared for this and how they interpret the experience as it's happening and another one is I think their innate willingness to deal with a situation and to try to understand what happened on their own uh, I know for myself, when I first started experimenting with these things, I had not read anything like Timothy Leary's books. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I had my first young. frightening, that's right, when I had my first frightening experiences, I certainly had to deal with them and sort them out for myself. Uh, they did discourage you, obviously, from going they ahead. They did discourage me. They, uh, I would say they may have made me a little bit cautious, mm -hmm. but they didn't discourage me. One of the important things that I found is that when I have had experiences of this type, uh, especially as I've you know done this more over the years and I started to know a little bit about what causes these experiences, is that these experiences tend to be very beneficial. Uh, 
even if you're using these substances frequently, it, a whole lot of uh, the personality does not change on a regular basis. So, like, I've gotten to the point where I can take psychedelics, you know, I can take them once a week or twice a week or whatever, and large amounts of them even, but certain aspects of my personality seem to be fairly stagnant. That's not necessarily good. You know, I've decided that I want it to be like that way. You know, I've learned to work with these psychedelics enough that I can, you know, keep it like this to a certain extent. But uh, often I'm in for a surprise. Maybe know? it's a group trip and you, you can't get out that far ahead of us, no matter how many substances you ingest. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe. It's, I've often wondered about it. Poss- possibly, although I would have to say that when I first started working with ketamine, I certainly felt like I was in a place where there were not too many other people. Uh-huh. Uh, and so a few John Lilly, but what Lilly. happened to him? Yes, well, he certainly used quite a bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he liked it, and he certainly is, uh, I think he's probably gone further out there than anybody I else has. I think so, yes, I agree with that. Well, DM, um, ultimately... What is the advantage of taking psychedelics as a spiritual practice? Do you feel as though you you personally have changed? And you talked some about the necessity for operating on the what I call the 3D level of existence. Um, I always assumed that the optimum ascension, as it were, was to... And you said that's why you didn't think ketamine was one of the best of the psychedelics for this, was bringing the high to every action that we take, to bringing that awareness and to learning to operate little by little by little. Peter Stafford said in an interview I did with him a long time ago, something about if you take these substances long enough, you're going to be hit by compassion. I, I, I like think that. that's so. I think that's a very important aspect of the experience. When I first started taking psychedelics, uh, 13 years old, I had been brought up in a fairly strict uh, Roman Christian family. Uh, the only things I had to look forward to in life was a job and a career, and and you know a family and just going through the whole cycle. It just seemed like what everybody else was doing. And I looked at people around me. I looked at you know the people that taught the schools and around the government, and I looked at the type of work that my father did, and none of it really interested me that much. And when I first took psychedelics, I felt like I was admitted into a world of compassion and beauty and creativity. The, and uh, it was like nothing that I had experienced in my regular life. And almost instantly that became a goal of where I wanted to be, or of a direction that I wanted to move in. I think that what's very important with psychedelics is that they tend to show people what the right direction is. They show people, you know, these places of love, these places of beauty. And, you know, then people can make a decision, okay, do I want to be there? Is, you know, do I want to work towards that? Do I want to move towards that? And how, as far as your own life, you spoke of taking one or two psychedelics a week, and I just wondered whether you're able to surround those experiences with uh, gardening or working or whatever it is you yes, do. Yes, I am. I've, uh, I'm one of these people that uh, John Lilly describes it as a, uh, I forget his term, sort of a, a multifunctional. Uh, Superman. I've I've tended to uh, throughout most of my life I've had uh, fairly demanding corporate type of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, where actually it was you know worked as a senior manager with a lot of responsibility, and at the same time as I was doing this, I usually usually would have businesses that I was running on the side, 
and these would tend to be more artistic and creative businesses. And that's the place where I felt like I could really apply this. And uh, presently, I, uh, all the work that I do is in the creative field. I have two businesses which I operate. Really? Amazing. And you wrote a book. That's correct. Are you working on another? Uh, not presently, no. Not, not yet. What I really, one of the things that I enjoyed very much about this book is that you actually put in some of your philosophy that you've gotten from psychedelic space, as you say, and that you know that you're a transmutational being, so somebody, and of course we all are, mm -hmm. but that you're wanting to share that knowledge with everybody else seems to me one of the large points and purposes of having had the experiences that there's more than this stuff. Yes, well, I think that, uh, and this is a philosophical point, that I think that the whole of everybody, everybody that exists on this planet and all other places in the universe, is in this process of evolution where we are moving in a direction where we are becoming fuller, more knowledgeable, I think that we're, however, slowly moving all in that direction. And if I look uh, at everything that I've been exposed to in life, the things which seem to have benefited me the most and which seem the worth, most worthwhile is when other people have gone and had experiences of some type where they experience some type of beauty or love or something really spectacular, and it inspires them to go on and share it with other people. And so that was, of course, one of the things which I wanted to do in writing this book is to help make this knowledge available for other people that are experimenting in this area. That seems like a good place to end, except perhaps there's, is there a passage in the book that you'd like to read? We yes. have just a few minutes left. I'll put this. Well, this is an experience which I had when I was in Death Valley. I frequently take psychedelics out in natural environments, which I think is actually the best place to do them. And this experience happened when I was on LSD. As I hiked through the mountains of Death Valley, there were some perceptions which I feel led to my experience. I had been closely observing some small lizards, which move at an amazing speed in the hot desert sun. In trying to synchronize with the lizard's mind, it was quite apparent that its time sense, as well as the flow of information from its sense organs to its responding muscles, was worlds apart from that of a human. Then, while hiking in a canyon, I noticed what appeared as webbing strewn across the canyon walls. Upon looking closer, this turned out to be a harder material than the rock below, eroding at a slower pace and standing out in ridges of web-shaped formations. It appeared to have been created during volcanic eruptions of molten minerals at the time that the mountains were formed. The canyon, cutting ever deeper into the mountain side, was revealing the history of the terrain. As I sat back to rest and closed my eyes, my visual sphere became filled with visions of desert animals like snakes and scorpions, images which are typical of a session in the desert. The next vision that appeared was a distinct image of a saber-toothed tiger. I thought of early humans who were hunted by such animals, and the strength of the impression this must have made on the minds of my ancient ancestors. This train of thought progressed, and I saw large, hairy, bear-like forest animals who probably left similar impressions on the species' consciousness. As my mind progressed further back in time, I began to see creatures of the dinosaur era, which in ancient times had roamed the ground I was now resting on. I was aware that going back along the evolutionary line, I must have evolved from such creatures. I began to feel that in times past I had been each of the animals that I saw, the predators who hunted, and the victims who fled from the predators with fear and were eaten. Then my mind's eye opened up and time spread out to infinity. 
I saw and experienced all the manifestations that the land around me had been through over millions of years and the lives of all the creatures that had lived there. This myriad detailed lives and visions was simultaneously present in my mind with startling clarity for a timeless moment. I had become the one mind onto which all the experiences of time have been etched. I went past this fulcrum and saw myself retreating to my individual perspective. The afterglow of this experience infused the next several hours of the acid high and left me awed with the magic of the desert environment. Thank you, D.M. Turner. Uh, let's tell people once again that your book is The Essential Psychedelic Guide, put out by Panther Press. Is it generally available, or should people order it's it from y'all? It's or? available in bookstores. It can be ordered through the mail. Uh, the address to order it from is Panther Press, 1032 Irving, number 514, and that's in San Francisco. The zip code is 94122, and the price, including uh, tax and shipping, is $16. And that's wonderful. It's well worth it. Thank you so much for coming all the way down well, and thank you. sharing what you are and what you've learned with people.